Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us this morning, uh, whether physically here or whether online. As Tim has said, we're finishing the first quarter of Luke's Gospel this morning, and so I'd like to read uh, several extracts from Luke chapters 5 and 6 together with you this morning. If you have your Bible with you, you may like to keep it open as we read selected verses. We're going to start at verse 27 of chapter 5. Um, this is the brief story of a man called Levi, who became one of the 12 apostles. You'll notice in passing that it follows immediately the incident of the paralyzed man who was let down through the roof to the feet of Jesus. So, verse 27 of chapter 5. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, just for three verses or so in chapter 6, again down to verse 27. These are just extracts, uh, summary extracts from the Lord's teaching to his disciples. Verse 27 and 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Down to verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And finally, verse 45. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This morning we reach the culmination of this first section of Luke's Gospel. And in chapter 6, the Lord, if you like, publicly appoints 12 of his disciples and designates them to be what he calls apostles. 
And those 12, well, 11 of those 12 apostles eventually became the founding fathers of what was uh, called later the Christian church. Now, these apostles had not been theologically trained. They were lay people. Some were fishermen who had their own business. Others, like Levi, were professionals. So they were not the product of the old Jewish religious system. As we will see, Jesus was going to create a whole new approach to developing mature Christian disciples, separate from the Jewish religious educational system. Now, we met one of these 12 apostles last week, Simon Peter, and Nicholas led us carefully through how the Lord Jesus brought Peter to himself and how later in his life uh, the Lord Jesus mentored Peter personally. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at another of these 12 apostles, Levi, as Luke calls him, but Levi is probably better known by the name Matthew. Um, and we will see the process by which Levi was drawn to accept the Lord Jesus and to following him as one of his disciples. I mentioned just before the story of Levi, Luke records the story of the paralyzed young man who was lowered through the roof and led at the feet of Jesus. But instead of healing him, Jesus declares to this young man, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. How do you know whether or not it's actually true? And how did this young man know that his sins had been forgiven by God? So to prove that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, Jesus healed the young man. And he got up, was able to walk, and went home. Now the news that Jesus had proved that he had indeed the authority to forgive sins would have spread like wildfire among those who knew they were sinners and needed to be forgiven. And that news, I'm sure, reached the ears of a certain tax collector called Levi. Levi collected taxes from his own people to give to the occupying superpower, which were the Romans. Luke introduces us to Levi then, or Matthew, using only a few words, but they're very telling words. Imagine when Levi's parents held their newborn son in their arms for the first time. They had to choose a name for him. And like most Jewish parents, they named, the name that they chose represented something of their hopes and aspirations for how their son would turn out. As the parents went through the possibility, they chose the name of one of their most famous ancestors, Levi. The original Levi was one of the 12 founding fathers of the nation of Israel. Levi's descendants were responsible for the religious life of the nation. Interestingly, the Levites also had a special position in the economy of Israel when it came to taxes. The other 11 tribes paid 10% income tax to God. And God directed that these taxes should be given 
to Levi's tribe. The Levites didn't actually collect the taxes. The nation recognized God's authority by paying taxes to God, at least some of the time they did. And the Levites then received them as a salary from God. I imagine that Levi's parents may well have had a great vision of their son one day becoming a great servant of God. But they were sorely disappointed because their son decided to work for the occupying Romans, the Gentiles, as a tax collector. Israel now had to pay taxes to Caesar. And this was seen as a betrayal of Levi's national identity. But to Levi, it was quite rational. Paying taxes is an admission of sovereignty. And Levi saw that the Romans had ultimate authority in the land of Israel, not God. And Levi, in his own Gospel of Matthew, he never apologizes for becoming a tax collector. He simply believed that the Romans had more authority over Israel than God had, and therefore uh, he, they warranted taxation. In holding that belief, Levi certainly did not live up to the aspirations of his parents. Now, I dare say there were times when Levi felt a bit guilty about having disappointed his parents. Some of the time, uh, he would have rationalized it, but there was always that sense of guilt in his mind. I wonder about us here this morning. Has anyone here ever felt that you've been a disappointment to your parents? You've made choices which have taken your life in a different direction to what they had hoped for you. And while you can justify it and point to reasons for the path that you've taken, there can be a nagging feeling of guilt which we can try to suppress. Levi tried to justify his choices by pointing to the power and authority of the Romans. But then he began to hear the news about Jesus and the great authority that this person had. He had power to heal sickness. He had authority over the forces of nature. And it occurred to Levi that here was an authority greater even than the Romans. Perhaps he had got it wrong. It looked like God was alive and well in Israel after all. And perhaps more than anything, Levi had just heard that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins and get rid of persons' guilt. How Levi yearned for that forgiveness and to be free from the feeling of guilt which he carried around with him. And then one day, this person, Jesus, stepped right into Levi's office. Levi was face to face with an authority way beyond Caesar's. He had got it so wrong. But he knew he was also face to face with someone who could forgive his sin, someone who could give him a fresh start after the wrong choices he had made. When Jesus then called Levi to follow him and to have the privilege of becoming a disciple, Levi was overwhelmed with the kindness and forgiveness of Jesus in not condemning him in front of his work colleagues 
And in the call of Jesus, there was the unspoken offer of complete forgiveness and the opportunity for his life to have eternal significance in serving the greatest authority in the universe. So in the end, Levi's parents should not have been disappointed. Their son did indeed turn out to be one of the 12 founding fathers of the new people of God. He did end up having a significant role in the service of God, just as his ancestor Levi had done. The first thing that Levi did was to realize that his friends also needed to meet Jesus. His friends were people like himself who had made similar choices in life, and many of them had little time for religion. But Levi knew they didn't need religion. They needed to meet Jesus. And Jesus was happy to come into Levi's home and to meet his friends. This was not just a party where Jesus was a mere onlooker. This was a dinner where Jesus was the special guest, the honored guest, and where Levi's friends would learn about Levi's new life discovery. Jesus was criticized for meeting with people like that. It certainly can be dangerous going into bad company, but Jesus described his role as a doctor. There was a pandemic of sin in Israel, and the only answer the religious leaders had was to socially isolate sinners as they saw them. But doctors are different. Doctors cannot keep their distance from those who are ill, because doctors can heal sick people. Mind you, it's doctors who know better than most the dangers involved in treating sick, sick people. It's not a job necessarily for everyone. And an inexperienced Christian needs to be very careful when talking with experienced sinners who could buy and sell us. So Luke has given us here this story of how the 12 apostles became Christians. And at this stage, they were novices with no theological training. They were going to have to learn quickly because in three years, only the time of a, a short degree, uh, they would be responsible for leading the Christian church on earth. So how was Jesus going to turn them into mature Christians? What was his educational program going to be? The old way of the Jewish religious system would have been to impose some religious disciplines on the 12 apostles, to put together a program, strict program of regular prayer and fasting, which is what, as we read, the Pharisees were proposing to get up at six in the morning to pray, no doubt, and then be sure to keep the Sabbath strictly. Start to work on controlling your external behavior in the hope that that will somehow permeate into the inside of us. And in that way, to develop your ability to serve God. But Jesus was going to do something totally different. The picture Jesus used for developing and maturing people is borrowed from uh, the process, process of producing good wine. Now, I confess it's not something I know anything about. 
but my friends tell me that good wine is not produced in a day or two. It has to mature, and the container that you hold the wine in is an important element of the maturing process. In Bible times, you used wineskins to hold the wine as it matured. And Jesus described the old Jewish system with its laws and religious disciplines as like an old wineskin that was used to develop God's people in Old Testament times. But what Jesus was bringing into this world was new life, eternal life. It was a new relationship with God based on a new covenant. And that new life, Jesus says, was like new wine. It was not yet the finished product. It needed new wineskins so that it could mature. New uh, developments, new disciplines, if you like. Not the old system of laws and religious disciplines, but something very new. Now, some people misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Yes, we do not become mature Christians by adhering strictly to the laws and religious disciplines of the Old Testament. But that does not mean that we live without any framework of discipline in our Christian lives. Quite the opposite. New wine needs new wineskins. And the whole purpose of new wine is to become old wine eventually. Because as the Lord said, anybody who has tasted wine, they do not like new wine. They say the old is good. So Christ's determined purpose for Christians is to become mature. And we need to go through a process of becoming mature. What is different in what Jesus was teaching is what those disciplines, what those constraints, if you like, in living the Christian life actually are. And in chapter 6, the Lord Jesus meets with his novel disciples for the first time publicly and sets out before them his program for them to become mature disciples. Not three uh, sort of strict external disciplines like fasting and keeping the Sabbath, Some of his teaching sounds similar to what is called the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke makes it quite clear that this was not on the mountain. In fact, he says that Jesus came down from the mountain and taught his disciples on the level ground. It's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain because uh, that's where it was delivered. Now, from this sermon, I want to select just three uh, principles which Jesus Uh, teaches his disciples, which will lead us to living mature and spiritually disciplined Christian lives. The first principle that Jesus lays out in verse 27 is this, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's not just a nice philosophical idea. This is Jesus telling those who are going to be leaders of the church. This is the first principle you must instill in your life. Love your enemies. The idea of having enemies may have been a bit strange at this time in their lives. In some parts of the world, when you become a Christian, 
you can end up having enemies you never had before. Even here in some circles in the West, taking your stand graciously as a Christian in the workspace can expose you to criticism, mockery, and even discrimination. How should we react to such opposition? One of the practices and principles which will help us to become mature Christians is to show love to those who are against us. We should work hard to treat those who are against us in the way that Jesus did. Even in these chapters, we see how Jesus treated his critics. He first of all treated them as real people. Mind you, he didn't let his critics walk all over him. Uh, as we have, have read in one or two places where we see Jesus being criticized and persecuted, Jesus did respond actively to his critics, and he did not let them get away with spreading false information about what he was saying. But he was always reasonable and gracious. He used interesting and even humorous illustrations to get his point across without antagonizing his critics by the way he answered. Loving your enemies does not mean letting them walk all over you but it may involve thinking hard in advance, planning how you could show love to those who oppose you, how you could explain graciously and perhaps even humorously what it is that you believe in the same way that Jesus did. Now, some of you are much better at this than the rest of us, and you're a good example to the rest of us to follow. But it is the first principle of spiritual discipline which Jesus has planned for us on the road to becoming mature. The second principle is in verse 37. The Lord says, do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you will be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Do not condemn. My mum once told me of a conversation she overheard in the bus one day. The woman in front of her was talking to a friend, and she'd said to her friend, my man got saved the other week. That meant that her husband had become a Christian recently. Oh, that must be nice, the friend said politely. Well, the woman said rather doubtfully, we used to enjoy doing things together. Now he nags at me all the time. He's always going on about me smoking. He gives off to me any time I go out with my friends for a wee drink. He forgets what he used to be like himself. All he does is try to get me to go to some meetings in that church that he belongs to now. He's no fun. We don't do anything together anymore. Now, far be it from me to advise any man either about being a husband or about being fun. <clears throat> but it does seem to me that this man had been wrongly taught in the very early stages of his new Christian life. No doubt he was sincere. But he needed to be taught what Jesus said here. Do not condemn. Do not judge. Remember what Jesus, what uh, the scripture says 
about the coming of Jesus in John 3, verse 17. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This man should have been told to practice this principle of do not condemn. There is a danger that Christians can end up interacting with society mostly by condemning everything that we see and judging other people. But when we condemn people, how do they react? It only makes them put up the shutters. It doesn't help to save them. They understandably become defensive, as we ourselves would. It drives them to justify their lifestyle. And they naturally see us then as the enemy. So what's the alternative? How can we help to save people if not by judging them? And this is the third principle that the Lord Jesus wants us to develop. He talks about doing good and developing a good heart. He said in verse 45, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Peter tells us in Acts that Jesus was known for going about doing good. The New Testament stresses that Christians should also be known for doing good. Sometimes we're so afraid of there being any hint of salvation by good works that we think that good works don't matter or are actually to be dismissed. But we underestimate the transforming power of doing good. If we develop the instinct to react to problems by doing good, we are becoming more like the Lord Jesus. Some Christians I know seem to have a, a natural instinct for doing good and thank the Lord for people like that. But others of us, it never occurs to us sometimes instinctively to know how to do good to people. And the Lord must see us as somehow being what in less politically correct times was called the backward class. We need special training. We need to learn how to do good. We need to store up good in our hearts so that when we're suddenly faced with a situation, we're already prepared to do good. So if we want to become mature Christians who reflect the character of the Lord Jesus, even to a somewhat antagonistic and confused world, we should develop, on, we should develop uh, these three principles of our lives to live disciplined Christian lives, not uh, in the old restraints of laws and regulations, but by developing those very positive, creative aspects and principles that the Lord said of loving our enemies, of not condemning people, and of doing good. And I pray that the Lord will enable us to do that in our lives. Let's just take a moment to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus not only taught about how to live in such a way that people in this world will be saved, but he lived it out himself. 
He faced opposition, and yet he responded to that with graciousness and with reasonableness. And he was successful in how he transformed these novice, lay, new believers to becoming those who were able to lead the Christian church in years to come. Father, we pray for ourselves. For anyone here who is not yet a believer, we pray that they would be drawn to the Lord Jesus. But those of us who are Christians, Father, we pray that we might make an effort, as we are encouraged to, to make every effort to become mature Christians by following the principles that the Lord Jesus himself has laid down. So we commit everyone here and every home and family represented here into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.